This week on the Most Hated F Word podcast, we hear a story on identity theft, money, betrayal, an unsolved mystery that took 20 years to solve. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Axton's story about identity theft is captivating. From battling the financial institutions and the barriers they created as she tried to regain her identity, to moving away in order to remove herself and isolate herself from the identity theft, to even acting as a cold case investigator, you're going to hear Axton's story and I promise you'll be on the edge of your seat. Before we get into Axton's story, if you've been enjoying the show, please, if you can do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. If you enjoy the content, if you enjoy our guest, please head over there, show us that you enjoy this show by leaving a review and giving us a star ranking. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. Now, on to Axton's story. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Today, my guest is Axton Betts Hamilton. She is an expert in identity theft, having personal experience that she's now turned into a career. Axton has made an understanding the nuances of identity theft her life's work. She frequently speaks on this topic at conferences and has won multiple awards for her research, teaching, and service. She is the author of the book, The Less People Know About Us. Axton has a PhD in human development and family studies focusing on child identity theft and elder financial exploitation perpetrated by family members. She also teaches at South Dakota State University. Axton, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you provided us some of your time. Time is one of those finite things that we never get back. So I'm grateful that you're here with us and I know our listeners are going to enjoy your story. Before we started recording, I I mentioned that our podcast really looks at the stories that we tell ourselves, the narrative that's going on inside of our minds, and how it just impacts our overall life story, our money story. And a lot of that is impacted by our external environments and things that occur around us and the influence they have on our stories. So my first question is is around your story. Someone once told me that our life is our story and our stories are life, and I really believe that to be true. So I'd like to start off with a bit of your story. As I mentioned in the bio, you were a victim of identity theft, and in fact, the case remained unsolved for 20 years, I hear. So for our listeners, can you share some of this story with us? Sure. So in 1993, I learned that my parents' identities had been stolen. And this was before identity theft was really a well-known and understood problem for consumers. In fact, in the United States, there weren't any laws that protected the consumer from identity theft at the federal level until 1998. So 
because of that context, I watched my parents deal with trying to recover from the identity theft unsuccessfully. Because at that time, in the eyes of the law, the creditors and financial institutions were considered to be the victims, not my parents. Mm. And my mom was the financial guru in the family. She had a bachelor's degree in finance, and she worked in the financial services industry for most of her career. So she led the charge with trying to recover from the identity theft. And there always seemed to be barriers to recovery. The police weren't responsive or the post office wasn't responsive because our mail was being stolen and there seemed to be no answer for that. And it wasn't just my parents' bills and other documents with personal information that were coming up missing. It was my mail as a child, you know, letters from friends, letters from pen pals, uh, my dad's farm magazines. We just weren't getting mail. So that point in the direction that someone in the post office was responsible, you know, maybe an employee of the postal system. And by the time I was 17, I was sick of it. You know, I was sick of not knowing what was going to happen every day because, you know, I got out of school. I wasn't sure what had gone on at home during the day. You know, was the electricity shut off for non-payment that was related to the identity theft? Was the gas shut off for non-payment? And those things did happen. So one of the reasons that I was so eager to go away to college and away meant two hours away on the other side of the state of Indiana, Mm -hmm. where I grew up, I looked forward to that because I wanted to get away from the identity theft. Mm. I thought the identity theft was focused on my parents and that if I went away to college, it wouldn't follow me. You know, I, I could have a chance at a typical average life and, you know, start my own financial life as an adult, you know, at, at 18. And I did for the first year of college. How old were you in 93 when you first found out? Like, what was the the time you, you I guess, your family was dealing with that before you moved away? So I was 11 in okay. 1993. So I watched my parents, yeah, I watched my parents deal with this for six years and, you know, closer to seven by the time I went to college. And the first year of college, I lived in the residence halls. And then my sophomore year, I moved off campus and got this little teeny tiny studio apartment. And, you know, it was old, it was well lived in, wasn't necessarily the nicest place in town, but it was mine and I was proud of it. And they allowed cats. So I could bring my two cats that I'd had since I was 10 and 12 and their names were Chunks and Sonny. And I was, you know, looking forward to having them with me at college. And I called the electric company to establish service. And they told me the date and time that the service would be changed into my name. And I thought, well, you know, this is good. We're you know getting closer to moving into the apartment. You know, the cats are going to be here soon. This is great. You know, I'm getting all pumped for this. And a few days later, the electric company sent me a letter in the mail stating that they needed a $100 security deposit due to my credit score. And I thought it was because I didn't have a credit score. You know, by this point, I was 19. There should have been a couple student loans in my name. And really, that should have been the totality of my credit report. Mm-hmm. Name, address, couple student loans. Okay, I don't have enough credit. You know, no big deal. 
And there was a number to call at the bottom of the letter to request a free copy of my credit report. And I called it out of curiosity because I didn't know what a credit report was when I was 19. And I wanted to see what this mysterious credit reporting agency, you know, that's how I felt at the time. This is like this mysterious agency is keeping some sort of report on me. What (laughs) is it? And about six weeks later, the credit report came and I remember the large manila envelope sticking out of my mailbox and I saw it was from the credit reporting agency and it was really thick. And I thought credit reports must be really hard to read. They must come with a lot of instructions and disclosures. But once I opened the envelope, I learned very quickly that credit reports are not difficult to read. They don't come with a lot of directions and disclosures, but rather mine was 10 pages long, full of fraudulent credit card entries and associated collection agency entries that dated back to the time that my parents' identities had been stolen in 1993. Wow. So the identity theft did follow me to college. Yeah. Wow. Take us back to that moment when you're looking at this manila envelope with these 10 pages. What was going through your mind there? I thought I would never own anything. You know, I thought I would never be able to get a car, that I would never be able to own a house, which I still don't, but that's my choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do I do have a car, you know, and I, you know, I've been able to obtain car loans. But at you know, at 19, I didn't think that was possible. I didn't think it was ever going to be possible. And I wanted to know what my parents had done to make someone so angry that they would mm. carry out this campaign of identity theft for so many years and not just focus on them, but also focus on me. You know, I was a kid mm-hmm. when all yeah. this was going on. And so who did they make so angry? You know, what, and what do we do to deserve this? Yeah. So many big questions for a 19 year old who's, as you mentioned, trying to get away from that identity theft as to, to come to terms that it's following you. And those questions you just asked about, again, as a 19 year old having to think about who have their parents made so angry, that's difficult for any age regard or let alone 19 years old. So then what, what did you do? Well, you know, I didn't rest on my laurels. I thought, you know, in looking at, at the credit card entries on the credit report, I saw that nearly all of them were taken out before I turned 18. And I thought, well, I'll start calling these creditors and they'll understand that I was under the age of 18 and they'll go ahead and remove the entry from my credit report. No big deal. And the first creditor I called, and they are a well-known credit card company in the United States. I spoke with a customer service representative. I told my story and she said, well, this isn't a case of identity theft. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, someone made two payments on the credit card and then stopped paying on it. And identity thieves don't do that. So she was essentially calling me a liar. Yeah. Wow. And that entry on my credit report stayed there. It was not removed. And that was my signal that recovering from identity theft was going to be a very long, very difficult process. And that this was a crime that I was presumed guilty because it was my name and my social security number until I could prove myself innocent. Wow. You know, and again, I I, are not again, but I... I know our listeners want to hear the continuation of the story, but I just want to pause for a second. You've said a few things that I've just taken notes that are just standing out to me. You're 
a 19 year old at this point calling a credit card agency saying that, Hey, I'm underage. Like there's under 18 years old taking out credit cards and they accuse you of being a liar. But before that you had mentioned that there's barriers to recover. The police weren't very helpful. The post office wasn't very helpful, but you also said that something that I wrote down here that my parents weren't the victim, but the institution was the victim. It's making my mind cringe just to think of how many, to, in your words, barriers there are for someone to navigate this identity theft. I mean, I know here in Canada and I hear the same in the States, trying to understand what goes into our credit score is a game in and itself. But on the other side of this identity theft, it sounds like it's, it's very difficult for someone to navigate the complexities of doing so with these barriers. What did you mean by the institutions were the victims? Did I hear that correctly? Right. So the financial institutions, the credit card companies, those were, according to the laws at that time, prior to 1998, they were seen as the victims because they were the ones who loaned the money and were being paid. And forget the individual? (laughs) Right, right. That's how it was until 1998. Wow. So no wonder there's barriers. (laughs) They didn't care about you. They cared about the victim, the institutions who are making plenty of money versus the individual whose life is impacted by this. Right. And, the, and you know, the financial institutions, the creditors, if they lose money due to fraud, you know, what, what do they typically do? They write those fraud losses off and then charge the customers who pay more in fees and interest rates and other things. They recoup their money. They, I mean, they're, they're not hurting, but it's the individual consumer who's hurting. Exactly. Not even hurting, but like at the opening, we talked about how the external events of our lives create the narrative we tell ourselves. So like these situations are legitimately impacting people's lives. But yet prior to 1998, they're more concerned about a dollar. Right. Anyways. Okay. Sorry. That just, that's, I never knew that. I can't believe that that was only 1998, not that long ago. Yeah, that, those barriers are unbelievable. So let's go back to the story. You're dealing with these barriers. You're having a hard time navigating the system because apparently you're not the victim and the institutions are. What were you able to do next? Well, so by this point, it was 2001. So the, the, okay. the law had changed by that point. But, you know, when a law changes, it takes a while for people and different agencies and institutions to really grasp that, I think, Mm. particularly in rural America. And I grew up in rural America. I was going to college in rural America. And after my negative experience with that creditor, I thought to myself, all right, I have to strategize. What is the best way to attack this? Because mom and dad weren't successful, or I should say mom, because she was the one going or at least she said she was going to the police. She wasn't successful with the local and county police. So it's like, all right, who in the state of Indiana could help with their case as well as my case? Because because it could be assumed based on the dates on the fraudulent entries in my credit report that the individual responsible for their identity theft was also responsible for mine. Mm-hmm. So what agency has jurisdiction over the whole state? the Indiana State Police. Hmm. So that's where I went for help next. And, you know, at 19 years old, I wanted something with lights, sirens, and if necessary, a hail of gunfire. You know, I'm thinking law and order, you know, like, you know, like, let's go. And 
An officer took a report, and all it said was unknown thief opened credit cards in my name, and the officer gave me a copy of it, said I would need it when I contacted financial institutions and credit card companies and wished me luck. And that was the end of the involvement with the Indiana State Police. Now, as a researcher, that's actually, for that time, that's actually a really good response from law enforcement. Okay. So I, I, I want to be careful to not, you know, be disparaging towards law enforcement because mm-hmm. they have jurisdictional boundaries. They only have so many resources available to them. And they are inundated with so many reports of identity theft that it's impossible for them to devote all all of the resources that are needed for each case. They just don't have the resources. So I've heard of cases where law enforcement refused to take a report, particularly in cases where a family member had stolen the victim's identity because it was considered to be domestic argument essentially, you know, you know, just work it out yourself, you know, that, you know, that, that kind of Mm. approach. And, you know, of course it's not helpful in most cases of of identity theft perpetrated by a family member. So my experience was actually pretty good with law enforcement, but you know, at 19 years old, I wanted more than that and I didn't get it and I wasn't going to. Wow. Your ability to take a, Right now, to to recognize that the the police and the law enforcement have their capacity where they can't fully investigate these is, I guess, commendable that you have so much emotion and this is influencing your whole life. So what did you do if this is the police is giving you this little report? Doesn't sound like your story of them showing up with (laughs) lights, sirens and guns blazing happened. Where do you go as a 19 year old, quite resilient, I must say, um, I'm just hearing this story and this, this has been happening since you were 11 years old in 93. Now you're 19 hitting all these barriers. You're exhibiting a lot of resilience as you navigate this, but did you make some headways? Did you find some, some answers as you progressed down this journey? Well, I, I did, you know, they weren't always satisfactory. So the, the next step that I did was I contacted the credit reporting agencies again and, and, copies of all of my credit reports and started disputing fraudulent entries, both for the original accounts and the collection agencies. Because collection agencies and and original creditors tend not to communicate once the collection agency has bought the bad debt. So I I had to dispute all of these different entries, although there were multiple entries associated with one original account, which was frustrating. So I went through the, the dispute process with the credit reporting agencies And sometimes the fraudulent accounts were removed because maybe a collection agency had gone out of business and there was no one available to verify the debt because the collection agency just didn't exist anymore. And then if the debt isn't verified within so many days with the credit reporting agencies, they'll just remove it from your credit report. In other instances, the debt was verified and all the verification that was done in, in some of these instances was they verified that my social security number and name matched. Uh. That was it. You know, they would, they would look in their records and, and do some research and find out that my name is this and, oh, my name matches with this social security number, which is correct. 
So, yep, it's verified the debt is hers. Did any of these institutions ever think like, wow, this this gal has quite a big credit history, 10 pages, 19 years old. She's adamant that this isn't her. Did, did you ever hear any sort of curiosity or empathy from any of these organizations that might have a, I guess, a stance like maybe she's telling the truth or was it always just, no, we don't, you know, we're not looking into this? It, it was always, no, we're not looking into this. And, oh, you're accident. Um, you should really pay for this, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> particularly collection agencies, yeah. they want you to pay. That's what they're yeah. in the business of, of getting people to do. And I never paid one penny on any of these bad debts. I just refused to do it. Wow. So at this time, you must just be like, were there points where you thought of giving up being like, there's, what can I do? I'm against the system that's not enabling me to navigate this unfair identity theft. Well, you know, there were times because it gets tiring and, and frustrating, you know, when you hear repeatedly, you're not a victim, this is your debt, your name and social security number match, so pay up. That wears on your psyche after a while. And there were times that I would just get frustrated and think there's no way out of this. Yeah. And, but, the, you know, there's a part of me that just wouldn't quit. And I thought the only real way to recover from this is I have to start building good credit while I'm trying to get rid of all of this bad credit in the form of fraudulent entries on my credit report. So I got a credit card and the credit card had a $300 limit, a $69 annual fee that they assessed before they would send me the credit card and a 29.99% APR. Wow. That was a way for me to build good credit. And then I got a car loan on a used car. And this is with my mom as a co-signer. The APR on that one was 18.23%. So that was the equivalent of putting a used car on a credit card. Oh, you know, that, that just strikes a nerve to me. It's like when someone's down and out and needs to build credit, why not just make things more not affordable and the terms and conditions unrealistic? I was being sarcastic there. Like, well, Yeah, exactly. But I knew that, you know, with the way our system is yeah, that yeah. I had, you know, I had to basically play the game or, yeah, right. you know, bite the bullet, so to speak, yeah. and make, you know, keep these accounts in good standing, pay my bill on time every month. And, you know, that would increase my credit score more quickly than fighting to get the fraudulent right. entries off my credit report. So I was doing both simultaneously. Yeah. And my comment there wasn't that you shouldn't have done that. That was more of my frustration that this is the way the system is created is we're going to penalize you even though you need the lowest interest rate possible to, to help you get out. But right. that, I guess that's another conversation, but so you're, you have this 29% interest credit card, $300 maximum allowable on the card. You're building up your credit score and you're still navigating this convoluted system with many barriers. Did you ever get a glimpse of hope? Did you start to make some headway? Well, so my credit score was slowly increasing over time, um, you know, which is positive because I was paying that credit card bill. I was paying my car loan on time every month. But along the way, uh, you know, through my frustration with this and, and thinking to myself, nobody should ever have to go through this. You know, this is not a way you treat victims. 
I decided in my master's program that I would study identity theft. And it, mm-hmm. it wasn't an, like an immediate decision. So I was in the consumer sciences and retailing master's program at Purdue. And also while I was going through this, you know, by the age of 23, and I stumbled on a research article on identity theft. And I didn't even think you could study that. I, it just, it never entered into my mind that, oh, you could do research on this problem. And I thought, wow, what a great way to devote time to understanding identity theft and conducting my own research on identity theft. And that'll be a way to help others. But hopefully along the way, it will give me some insights that point me in the direction of who might be responsible for my identity theft and my parents' identity theft. Right. Wow. It sounds like, uh, again, I just, I, I, as I hear your story, I just feel the resilience in you at such a young age. And it seems to me, not only are you navigating this difficult system of the credit score and trying to figure out who stole your identity. Uh, You're taking a master's degree now and you're turning into almost a detective to solve this case for yourself. Right. I I felt a little bit like a cold case investigator. (laughs) It sounds like it. So as you're in this program and you're studying identity theft and it sounds a bit of applying your case to, to the studies, did you make any headway on whom stole your identity? I guess indications of who was doing this? Well, I didn't really have focused indications on who was responsible, actually, until I got into my doctoral program. But what my master's research enabled me to do was I look at articles about identity theft defenders. And again, this is 2003, 2004, 2005. And there just wasn't a lot out there on the offenders, um, particularly in the research literature. But I would go online and look at popular press articles and look at different articles that talked about potential characteristics of identity thieves. And Mm. do, do, does someone, you know, have they recently purchased something that they may not really be able to afford, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking, all right, who, where I grew up, you know, checks these boxes. And so I had a, a running list of suspects that, paralleled the running list of suspects that mom had that she had developed over the years as our or as mom and dad's case unfolded. But once I got into my doctoral program, um, and once I entered my doctoral program, I knew I wanted to study the experiences of identity theft victims who were victimized as children, but didn't learn about it until they were adults. Mm. And, you know, in that process, I learned that there are many others out there who have experiences that are similar to mine. I did learn that identity theft offenders, particularly those who are stealing their own child's identity, they're stealing other family members' identities as well. So if there are multiple children in a family, chances are all of the children have their identity stolen, not just one. See, I'm an only child, so, it, you, okay. you know, I, I had no siblings to talk about this yeah. with. Um, so, you know, that, that was an interesting insight. And, you know, going through that process, it you know, it helped refine my list of suspects that had 
you know, been around for a few years at that point, but it didn't point me in the direction of the person ultimately responsible because that, that person did a very good job of telling stories that had a at least some truth in them and did a very, very good job of twisting the truth in such a way that it's, it's like, oh, well, yeah, I, I can see that. You know, I, I, I believe you. Mm-hmm. So you're in your doctorate. Again, you're, you're refining your list of suspects, no siblings to talk to. During this point, are the police still essentially not involved? It's just all you being the investigator on this? Oh, it's totally all me. Just all you, okay. So you're older now. It's during your doctorate. How old were you at that time? Oh, let's see. I started my doctorate when I was 25. 25? Okay. Sorry, I know people, it's sometimes taboo to ask age, but I'm thinking about a time here. So 25, you've been dealing with this now from 11 to 25 years old, Mm -hmm. and you're now dedicating your research, your education to this very subject of identity theft. Police are uninvolved. You're now acting as a, a side job as an investigator. Where do you go from here? You've got your list, but it's not really refining it. Your words were just now, it wasn't you know, it wasn't pointing you to the person who was ultimately responsible. So at this point in your doctorate degree, where did you go? Did, how did you make more progress towards finding the ultimate person responsible? That was really difficult because to give a little bit more context about my upbringing, because of the identity theft and because the individual or individuals responsible were doing the identity theft so well um, that they made it look like my parents were the ones ultimately misusing their credit. My parents assumed that it was someone close to them, like a close family member or a friend of the family. So we just stopped talking with people. You know, we stopped communicating with friends of the family and with extended relatives and Part of the reason that I, I got stuck at this point was because I wasn't allowed to talk to some of the people, you know, who were on the list or close to people who were on the list. You know, there was this, like my mom in particular was very adamant that I go to college and that, you know, I, I leave my hometown. You know, she, she didn't like our hometown at all. Didn't think there was anything there for me. Thought the people there were terrible and, you know, didn't want, them to have any influence on me, you know, didn't didn't really want me to have, you know, friends while I was growing up from there. So it kind of felt like, you know, it was just like this place where there was like wall around it where again, a barrier that I I couldn't break. And it turns out that barrier was totally created by her. It wasn't realistic at all. Mm. And so, one can assume by this story here that barrier she may be afraid of the the individual trying to protect you maybe you leaving town is trying to get you away from the identity theft and mm-hmm. what, was this barrier created as a means to protect the family it was it was and what were your parents doing during this time like i can assume their credit was impacted as well were they working it was. they were so 
by this time, this would have been, I would have been in my late twenties, early thirties. My dad's been a department manager for a grocery store now for over fifty years. Oh wow! Um, so he's still doing. You know, at that time he was still doing the same job, still working the farm with the animals. And my mom at that point was working for a group of radio stations in Indianapolis, Indiana. So she wasn't in our hometown either. She was driving 70 miles one way to go to work, and she loved it because she got to leave our hometown. Mm. So she's leaving the hometown. She's getting out of this town that she wanted you to get out. But there's still mm-hmm. these these barriers that, as you said, that that she's created. Right, right, that don't talk to anyone from there. You have better things to do. These people are going to drag you down. They're going to hurt you. At this point, is her suggestion almost forget this, ignore it, leave it alone? Yes. Yes. Wow. Absolutely. I, I'm just thinking about my parents and I'm thinking I have two young kids. As children, I mean, our, I certainly know this from my two young kids is our parents, they're the world to us. As a daughter hearing your mom say, just forget, forget it, get out of town, you know, just leave it go. You must have been conflicted that you're a young 30-year-old now. You want to pursue this thing that you've been battling since you're 11, but your mom's telling you just to basically leave it go? Right. So one of the things that she would tell me when I would talk about my research or I would get upset about a collection agency letter that I received from some old account from way back when, she would say, you know, the people who did the identity theft to us, you know, they, they've used our identities for what they can and they've moved on. That's what mm. identity thieves do. Mm. Okay. And, and the implication was just leave it alone. Yeah. Were there new accounts being opened up or had that stopped? That had stopped back in 2000, well, actually 2000, according to my credit report. And that was really because my credit was so low at that point. My credit score was 380 when, when I first got my credit report when I was 19. There couldn't be credit obtained in my name at that point. It was right. so bad. Yeah, that must be such a conflicting position to be in that your 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 mom saying, just let it go. Credit thieves, this is how they work. They use you and then they go away. But yet you've got this desire that that you've been fighting for years now that you obviously want to solve this. So at that point, right. what? how does this story continue? Well, so my my quest to, to solve the identity theft got stalled again shortly. Well, actually, it was the day that I, according to my transcript, that I officially completed my doctorate, August 4th of 2012. That was the day that my mom was diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoblastic leukemia. Mm. And by this point, I was in a faculty position in the state of Illinois. So not too far from where mom and dad lived. It's about a four hour drive. And, you know, she had, you know, a difficult diagnosis and the course of treatment was very difficult. She had an inpatient chemo in Indianapolis for 30 days at a time. So she lived in the hospital for 30 days wow. and then would have outpatient chemo for two weeks and then would go back in the hospital for 30 days of inpatient chemo. And that was to be the plan for six months, but ultimately mom passed away uh, shortly before that six month mark. Mm. And so, you know, those six months, I was just trying to survive, you know, I was just, right. you know, trying to help dad survive, trying to get my, you know, my feet under me, you know, as, as a new faculty member. And 
you know, those six months survival was the most important. Wow. Again, I just go to this overall theme I keep hearing from you about resilience and your word is just to survive. And, you know, you're, you're just in a faculty position, just graduated from a large accomplishment, but you're, you're not focusing. It sounds to me on celebrating. It's just surviving. So what do you, what do you do at that point to survive? How, how do you cope with everything? Well, I, so I was diagnosed with panic disorder when I was 14 okay. and that disorder would rear its ugly head at different points in my life. And once mom was diagnosed with cancer, that went off the charts. I went to my doctor and she gave me the highest dose of anti-anxiety medication I had ever been on in my life. And some days that wasn't enough. So I really relied on medical care. Um, you know, sometimes it was really hard even to, to stay in my townhouse. It's just like, I feel claustrophobic, you know, from all the anxiety. And so I would just have to go outside. I remember the night that I got the call that mom had been diagnosed with cancer and I was such a mess and just, I, I felt like I couldn't stay in the house, but you know, it, was, it was dark, you know, it was just like mm-hmm. 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I took my air mattress, blew it up, threw it on my back porch and laid out there. And I'm like, I don't even care what the neighbors think. I, I'm like, I can't breathe. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I was just like, I was just that wound up. And I took my phone out there with me in case mom or dad would call. And I remember the next morning I woke up at sunrise and I had the phone clutched in my hand. Hmm. And so you have the phone. Did, did it ring that night or you just woke up and you had the phone? In your I, just, hand? I, I, I think I slept my hand, with my hand clutched on that phone. Just in case. All night. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So then traumatic time, your mom passing away. That's hard for anybody. You're still in the faculty position and your mom passes away. How did you and your dad... I guess, move on from that. So mom had been put on hospice four days before she passed away. And at the time, they had told us that mom could live for another 30 days. And before I went to Indiana to see mom, you know, dad was telling me this over the phone. I remember thinking, you know, my mom was in her late 50s. And, you know, I thought, you know, know, in my mind, I thought, you know, it's still got... 20 or 30 years with mom. And then it Mm. turned out to be a matter of days. And so I wanted mom to see all these major milestones before she passed away. Mm -hmm. So I called my then fiance and said, and he lived up in Northern Illinois at the time. And I called him and said, you need to get down here. And I explained what was happening with mom. And I said, you need to bring a suit because you're going to get married in it. <laughs> and, and I mean, I didn't give him a choice. I said, bring a suit. You're getting married in it before mom passes away. And that day that I called my fiance and the dad called me and told me that mom, mom was going to make it. Um, it knocked me off my feet so much that I couldn't drive. And I've mm. never been traumatized enough where I couldn't drive. So that was, that was a new weird experience for me. But I was with it enough to arrange a wedding. <laughs> um, my dad's minister friend was willing to marry us. I, I got a plan together for how we would get the marriage license in Indiana. And 
I was picking out clothes and I decided to wear my doctoral regalia because mom was too sick to come to my doctoral graduation and and she hadn't seen me in it and yeah you know pulled all of this together even though I was too out of it to drive um (laughs) and we got married in mom's hospital room before she passed away oh wow wow that must have been special for you to be able to have your fiance to say yes to get to the room and have that marriage inside her room right yep my maid of honor, or my, I should say my matron of honor, was my cousin from Chicago. And she said that it's the only time she's been a matron of honor in sweatpants. <laughs> so, I mean, we, I mean we, you know, we, we had, you know, like yeah. you know, those kind of folks there, you know, matron of honor and, you know, th- those sorts of things. But very small, simple ceremony. Uh, the nurses actually decorated the room. Oh, while, wow. My now husband and I went home to get our clothes and, you know, and I, you know, shout out to, to the nurses on the oncology floor at Ball Memorial Hospital because they were amazing that night and they spent their own money to, to decorate the room. Oh. You know, they, they put, you know, they got rose petals and put them on the floor and used a oh, bed sheet wow. as a runner and they got, uh, they was some of them ran to the grocery store down the street and got sparkling. Yeah, grape juice and cupcakes and I mean just and they got they made corsages out of flowers that they bought at the grocery store and pinned one on mom and one on dad and I uh, wow. did mom's makeup for I mean they just told we were gone for an hour and the nurses totally transformed the room wow my wife is a nurse and I often think that they're uh, unsung heroes that Yep. Um, they do they do a lot, and certainly sounds like those ones there had a major impact in in your life. A wedding, a big part of our lives that they made in the hotel or uh, hospital room. Yep. Wow, Axon, I feel like I could just chat with you for hours and hours. I I want to be respectful of our time that we have booked together. So my question before we go on to to see if you you found the the individual who. Uh, ultimately was responsible. But after that wedding, I don't know if it was day or night, the wedding in the, your mom's hospital, what did that mean to you to be able to do that with your mom in her hospital room? It felt like, you know, one of those life goals that I always thought that I had plenty of time to accomplish. And there was a sense of satisfaction that I was able to pull it off. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the ideal location or the ideal attire or anything like <laughs> yeah. that. But in terms of the, you know, the symbolism and the actual ceremony and, you know, make, making it legal and all of that, um, I pulled that off in a three-day period, mm-hmm. um, you know, under incredibly tense circumstances. And there was a sense of satisfaction from from doing that and and being able to accomplish that while mom was still physically able to uh, enjoy it. Yeah, I can imagine. So as your story continues, your life story, getting over any death, let alone our parents, is, is a difficult time. What role did that play in your investigation for the individual responsible for your identity theft? Did you put a pause on your investigation? Maybe just take us back to yeah, your, your investigation to find out who ultimately was responsible. It naturally paused for a brief period of time. After mom passed away, I think dad and I were going through the normal 
grief process. And it was 13 days after she passed away. And I was back in Illinois trying to get caught up with, you know, the classes I'd missed and the pile of grading that had stacked up. And I was sitting at home one night grading and my dad called me in a rage and started yelling at me for taking a credit card out and running it over the limit in 2001. Mm. Now, mind you, this is 2013, okay? And I'm being yelled at for something that happened in 2001. And I said, Dad, what are you talking about? I didn't do that. And he said, yes, you did. I have the credit card statement right here in my hand. And I said, what credit card statement are you talking about? And he says, well, First USA. And I said, Dad, that was one of the credit cards that was taken out in my name as part of the identity theft. What's mom doing with that? Because he said he'd found it in a file box of mom's. And he said, well, I don't know, but it's in here with your birth certificate. Mm. And my blood ran cold. Yeah. Because there is no logical reason that a credit card statement and a birth certificate should be in the same file folder unless you were trying to prove that the credit card wasn't mine or you were trying to prove that it was. Also, Mm -hmm. I had my birth certificate, so I really didn't know what was in that file because I had my original birth certificate. And dad was telling me, no, this is your original birth certificate. Well, wait a minute. And so this was at the end of February. And I told dad, put that and anything else you find aside And I'll come home over spring break and take a look at it. Well, by that point, there was a mound of papers that dad had found and piled up on a workbench in this. And it was in this building on their property that mom had used as an office for a while, then kind of like a haphazard storage area for her stuff. And that's what his file box was. And the credit card statement was, it, it did show First USA on there, which was reported to the credit bureaus in my name. But also on the credit card statement was a logo from my mother's employer at that time. And my mom worked as an investment representative for a well-known investment firm uh, in the United States. And I did some research on that credit card. And that credit card was a partnership arrangement between my mother's employer and First USA, which is now a defunct bank. And to get that card, typically what you would do back at that time is you would go into an investment representative's office, fill out the credit card application, and they would send you the credit card. And the credit card itself would have my mom's employer's logo on it, mm. but the credit card was actually through First USA Bank. Okay. And the birth certificate was a certified copy issued on June 7th of 2000. So I couldn't have been the one to request that birth certificate because I was in college at Purdue at that time taking summer courses. And putting all of this together told me that mom was the offender, that her identity had never been stolen. And she stole my identity, dad's identity. And in continuing to go through the documentation, she stole my grandfather's identity. So it would be her father-in-law. So my dad's dad. Mm. And he had lived with us for several years. So she took out credit cards in his name, too, because I I did find documentation of that. So ultimately, the thief was in front of me the entire time, but did such an excellent job of being a victim. Again, when our electricity was shut off due to the identity theft, when our gas was shut off 
she was sitting in the house with us with no utilities. I mean, she she was feeling the consequences of this as well. Mm -hmm. So to me, she looked like a victim. And she, you know, again, she was, you know, the financial guru in the family. She worked in the financial services industry. You know, she wouldn't know the consequences of doing this. You know, know, why would she do this? And she was also very good at casting that list of suspects that I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. as these terrible people who were likely involved. And again, the list of suspects for the most part were relatives of my dad's. And yes, some of them have not been the most stand up people, Mm -hmm. but knowing what I know now, none of them would have had the tenacity to continue the identity theft for so many years. Wow. I, I have mentioned this a couple times already, Axton, but the, the the resilience that you must have inside of you is uh, quite substantial. Take us back to that moment when you figured out that the identity thief was in fact your mom. How does one even begin to process the, the I'm, I'm sure, a flood of emotions that are associated with that? Well, remember my earlier mention of, of the cold case investigator in me? Yeah. That's, I, I went full on cold case investigator, <laughs> you know, to, to, to understand all of this because I felt at that point, I didn't know who mom was. I didn't know how far her deceit went. Mm. And so all of these terrible people, you know, that, that she had talked to me about, you know, her former friends, extended family, those were the people at this point that I had to go talk to because I knew who the thief was at this point. So I had to talk to these people who knew mom, who had talked with mom over the years to really get a good understanding of who she was and perhaps why she did some of the things that she did. As part of that process, I went to her high school alumni banquet for her 40th class reunion. Mm -hmm. And she graduated from high school in a little town in Ohio. Um, so she spent her senior year over there um, in a resort town where my grandparents um, had a little mobile home on an island that they would spend weekends uh, there. And I went over there to ask questions of people I didn't know. <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, at, at her class's table and clearly I'm, I'm a generation removed. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I'm sure I stuck out like a sore thumb, but <laughs> I was sitting there just, grill, you know, just grilling people. One, I remember this very distinctly, said, well, it's imp- see, mom was using her maiden name with that group of people. And she okay. said she was divorced to this group of people. Oh. Yeah. So when I went to this class reunion, I had to rehearse in the car who I, who I was. I had to rehearse my introduction because I could see through Facebook, she had been communicating that, with these folks is by using her maiden name. Oh. And so I had to rehearse my introduction as... I'm Pam Elliott's daughter. You know, I I had to go into, I had to read as much as I could on Facebook of things that mom had been writing in private messages and things that she had been posting. And I was able to get into her Facebook account after she passed away. And I used that information to try and get my head into the context of who mom was with these people. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of her classmates distinctly telling me, you can't possibly be Pam Elliott's daughter. She didn't have any children. Oh. 
So there was something deep within me that prior to going to this alumni banquet, something told me, take old pictures of mom in case I get questioned. And I did. And so I was like, I pulled these pictures. I'm like, well, how else would I have these pictures if I wasn't her daughter, you know? Yeah. And so I, I, mean, I was able to convince this classmate of hers that I, I really am her daughter, but that was a very awkward moment. A very, it was a very awkward night. Um, but I did that with, see, mom portrayed herself differently depending on who she was talking to. So I had to use what she was saying in her private Facebook messages for the most part to really understand what, what, truths and half truths and lies she had been telling people and then dive into that and like you know go into that like i know what's going on like you know this is this is the pan that everybody knows and kind of you know you know get in that zone and then start asking questions Mm -hmm. wow so many so many different facets to this conversation and again i i feel like I could spend hours finding, asking you more questions because, again, as a young adult, this is a lot to deal with. But as we come to an end here, Axton, my, my last question is, I guess two questions. As humans, we like certainty. We seek to understand. I would have to assume there's so many unanswered questions that you have, why she did this, what influenced her. Do you have any indication through your cold case investigation of what potentially motivated her? Were you able to find out? Again, I guess these are potentials, potential influences to her actions. Yeah, so I, I do have a few working theories. Mom did exhibit a lot of behaviors that are consistent with antisocial personality disorder. Now, I'm not a clinician, and you can't diagnose someone after they've passed away, but. Mm-hmm. She did exhibit a lack of guilt for what she did. She lied, and quite frankly, rather magnificently, because she never missed a step with her lies. You know, she never got, she never forgot that she had said a lie to one person and then, you know, said the truth at another time. So very, very good at that. Very manipulative. But also, from what I have learned from people in my hometown who knew my grandmother, so her mother, and see, I never knew my grandmother. She passed away before I was born. It would appear that it is possible that mom had a very good teacher because my grandmother had a spending problem to the point where my grandfather had considered filing for bankruptcy back in the 70s. And... People describe my grandmother as very cold and that she gave off this air that she was better than everyone else and that she looked down on people. And mom was a lot like that as well. So, you know, how much of it is nature versus how much of it is nurture? You know, who knows? I mean, that's the big question in human development with anything. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think there was probably something psychological driving this, but also, you know, my grandmother could have modeled a very poor value system for my mom as she was growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, as we know, we learned so much through that modeling and social learning. And it's interesting to hear about your grandmother. Like you're saying, there's conversation that she spent her money quite frequently and that modeling gets passed on. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Axton, I really appreciate you being so open and transparent to sharing your story. I'm going to say this and hope I don't sound too repetitive, but you have so much resilience inside of you. When I hear your story, I just, that keeps popping out as someone to navigate all these barriers to have to have a rushed wedding to in your mother's hospital, her pass away, and then find out that she's the one who was your identity theft. And now though, too, I, I think it's inspiring to see that you're dedicating your studies, your, your work, your, your life to researching this and making an impact and producing research around this topic. So I just, yeah, I want to applaud you for, for sharing your story, but also all the work that you've been doing. And that leads me to your book, The Less People Know About Us. What was it like? like, This is my last question before we close off is what was it like writing that book? Well, so so writing this book was was an accident, honestly. So I had been invited to be a guest on a different podcast back in 2016 about my identity theft experience. And between 2013 and 2016, I had started writing a book which meant 20,000 words of disorganized scenes in a Word document on my laptop that I thought someday I'll organize these and publish this after I earn tenure you know, at, at the university I was at previously. And now I'm at a different university. So life has you know, had a different plan for me on that. But in the podcast, I had said one line, and it was basically a throwaway line, and it was, and I've started writing a book about this. <laughs> Didn't think anything of it. You know, my, my 20,000 words of disorganized scenes that were not in chronological order at all. I didn't I mean I just I just threw that out there and yeah. didn't think anything about it. And then a few days later, after the podcast aired, a literary agent contacted me and said she was interested in representing me and I thought it was a scam. I really <laughs> did. I was like, no, no, this this is too good to be true. This is not real. And I did a little research on the agent and the agency and realized that the agent was indeed a legitimate agent and the agency represents some very well-known people, you know, in, in the pop culture world. And I thought, all right, I'm going to respond and I'm going to see where this leads. And ultimately it led to a book contract with a traditional publisher, Grand Central. And, uh, you know, once I got that book contract, I mean, the writing went full steam ahead. Um, worked with a ghostwriter to help with structuring the book. And she was very good at questioning me for details about emotions and more details to paint the picture of the scene. Because I'm, I'm more of an academic writer. Like, I'm, I, you mm-hmm. know, my first draft, I was that, that 20,000 words, I was writing the facts. Yeah. And, you know, I thought the facts were good enough on their own. Like, you know, the facts themselves will make your, you know, make your jaw drop. But yeah. Reader, readers, of books, you know, they want a picture painted for them. So, I had, you know, she helped me dig a little deeper on that. But, so, you know, it was a collaborative process in that regard. Actually, uh, it was also educational because I did have to talk to some additional folks. And, you know, some some of these folks um, illuminated more information about my parents' relationship, you know, when I was young and before I was born and remember things about me when I was little that I had forgotten. And so um, I learned a little bit more about my mom and my family history through the process of writing the book. 
Wow, what an incredible story. For the listeners, I, I certainly suggest they head over and get a copy of your book. As uh, again, the emotions that you mentioned in the book are, are fantastic and it just is, it's a, a great story. So thank you so much, Accent, for sharing your story with me and our audience. I greatly appreciate you taking this time today. Well, I thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed that story. What a fascinating story Axton shared with us. Again, if you've been enjoying this show, please do me a favor. Head over on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. It means a lot. Until next time, have a great day.